So there are times where like, uh, we're going from worship into uh, prayer, and I feel just compelled to continue with the pastoral prayer. You notice sometimes I'll take a break, and then you can sit down. I just want you to know, as a free Methodist church, I've always said this, I love the word free. You know, we have, we have methods. We're trying to teach the children. I don't know if you noticed. We're trying to teach the children some of these methods. Um, um, b- by the way, I, I know some of you noticed how distracting the children can be at times, especially when Hartley joined the, uh, the drums and, and little Autumn uh, couldn't help but want to be around her dad and then thought, well, I'm close enough now to just make it onto the stage. I'll just go for a run. And obviously, Tessa and Anna Claire need mommy and daddy, and, and we're worshiping, and they sometimes uh, leading, and, and they come right up there too. We're trying new things to prevent that. I, I, we, but during this time, I ask for grace, as the kids need to learn these things. And I know it's hard. I know it's hard, especially if you have hard time hearing. I know that they can be loud. So what, just, I want to explain some of the changes that we're going to make in the service so that you can understand some of these changes. One is that, uh, as Rosalind did today, we're going to play two songs at the beginning of the church that are more geared towards the children, so they can have fun and learn to worship. And then we're going to either have a children's moment or dismiss them. And we've also moved the kind of party section from the front here, where they were partying right here, to the party sections at the back. And so, if you're someone who's used to that back corner and you want to move, obviously, I know we're also a Methodist church, and some of the Methodists like to sit where they always sit, but it's okay if you sit in a different part of the church. You know, we're all creatures of habit. That's my, that's my chair. How come sitting, someone's sitting in my chair? No, it's okay if you move. It's all right. Um, I understand. Today, I'm going to be preaching on tradition. Tradition. And, and here's the thing. There are things that we do for a purpose that can be helpful in our faith, and there are things that we have done in the past that have hindered our faith. There are times, I think it's so interesting because, because um, as, a, as a leadership team, the board had a meeting this week to talk about some of these challenges that we're facing. Guess what? They're wonderful challenges. For, for myself as a pastor, if I was preaching in a church with no children, I would be very discouraged. So the fact that we have children who are causing disturbances in the service, I'm like, praise the Lord. At the same time, I'm like, I'm sorry, and I do apologize because half of them are mine. I know I have a big clan, and I apologize, but, and I want them to learn too, and I remember the days where I would stack the hymnals, here I got a hymnal, right, we used to always sing out of this rather than project it on the screen, and we'd, we'd have these, and every uh, seat would have one of these, or every few seats, you know, you'd have to share maybe with your loved ones beside you, and, and I would grab all of them, this is my early recollections of church, back when there were wooden pews in my church, I would grab as many as I could from my row and the row in front of me, stack them up as tall as I could so that it was like this tall, and I would sit on top of them so that I could see what's going on around me, right? And, and, then, and then as soon as, as soon as my parents came to see what I was doing, or they would like put an end to that, right? And I was told, sit there, be quiet, just like the rest of us were at one point. And I think there's a delicate balance there, right? Between the sit there, because I know, meet a lot of people who've been told to sit there and be quiet, and guess what? They didn't like church. They didn't go back to church. I'm having conversations with a lot of hockey parents. You know, they have, they're, they're Catholic. Guess what? They don't, they're not Christian. I know there are, okay, I want to make this clear. I know there are many people who are Catholics who are Christians, who love Jesus, who worship Jesus. To me, there are brothers and sisters in the faith. They practice their faith maybe a little bit differently than us, but if they love Jesus, they're Christians. 
However, I want to be clear about this. There are people, it doesn't matter if they're Catholic, they could be even free Methodist. You could be one of them here today, and I hope you're not. But this could be the case. You could be here and have no clue who Jesus is. No relationship. Now, that's, that's my job as a pastor, to share with you the good news of who Jesus is so you can come to know him. But if we're just practicing as you picked a wonderful song for my sermon today, Rosalind. Uh, we don't need cold religion. We don't need just, you know, being a free Methodist church, we don't need just methods that have no purpose. And so as we were meeting this week, and uh, Linda's our board chair, and Linda did a great job communicating with Pastor Liz and, and, and myself and Susie, the concerns that we, okay, we need to make sure that we're not you know, running a circus here so that nobody can focus on the service, but we also don't want to shut down the opportunity for these children to learn why we do what we do. And I don't know about you, but the moment this morning where the kids were at the front of the church praying, that's, that's my heart. Now, we kind of orchestrated that, but my heart is like over the next few years, they will learn to do that on their own. And I thank you for those of you who felt compelled to come pray with them, but that's the modeling that we need and not just because it's a method, but because it's your heart to want to pray. And I know a lot of things have happened over the past few years where we don't know, like social distancing. We want to, you know, if someone's wearing a mask, it's probably because they want to protect you as well as themselves. And so just, you know, respect those people and give them space. But I want to get back to a place where we can come forward, where we are not afraid to enter into this sacred time with the Lord. There's meaning behind it. See, it, we can have prayer rails, which we call altar rails. We can have um, services like we're going to have today with communion, and we could have all kinds of special readings and liturgies, and honestly, it could go in one ear, out the other, and it could mean nothing. But I think it's important that as we go through these processes, we allow them, whether we're doing it to go through the motions Sometimes you need to go through the motions of discipline in order for it to knock at the door of your heart. I'm learning this myself. In my 20s, I would say I was a man who saw those traditions and said, what do we need those for? But you know what I found out is that was often an excuse for me to be very undisciplined. To say, well, I don't need that, so I can do whatever I want. And then when I needed those things like prayer and the discipline of habitual prayer and prayer without ceasing, like Pastor Liz was talking about this morning, if I didn't have the discipline right then and there, then I would get caught up in the busyness of life, the distractions of this world, and then I would only come to God when I'm praying the only breath prayer that I knew how to pray in that moment, which was, help! I got myself into trouble. And so the methods, okay, so again, I love the fact that we are a free Methodist church. We want freedom in worship. We are not going to tell you to get to the front of the altar now. Run, come on, here, you should be here. The church has gotten themselves into trouble when we say you should tithe. You should make sure that you're here every Sunday. Where are you in church if you miss a week? Hey, I was on vacation, leave me alone, pastor. You know, like we don't want to push people away from the church. But we can go too far the other way, can we not? Where we say, hey, well, I guess it doesn't matter. This should matter. What we do here, why, we, why would we do it if it doesn't matter? And so today we're going to look in the scriptures. We're going to look at Acts chapter 15. And the early church was trying to figure this out. Because guess what? They went through these issues too. 
They had their Jewish traditions. Remember, the, this is the formation of the Christian church. And so in the Old Testament, they had a whole list of how to do things. I think it's 613 or something like that. Um, Old Testament traditional laws. You had to do these things in the scripture. And guess what? The Pharisees and the Sadducees, those are the religious groups of Jesus's day, they added on to those. So they said, well, in order to do these 600-something rules, we're going to add another 1,000 rules on top of that to make sure we don't even get close to breaking these rules. And then Jesus comes along, and he starts talking about things like the Sabbath, and he says, hey, listen, what's better, to do good on the Sabbath or to do evil on the Sabbath? Jesus comes along, and he, he, he lets his disciples pick grain on the Sabbath. Jesus starts turning things around and makes the disciples think, well, what, what is the purpose of this? Why are we doing what we're doing? Do we want to please God? Or are we just trying to be on good behavior so we don't get in trouble from God? Do you, do you understand the heart of that, the difference that? Some of us were raised in churches where it's like, don't get God angry at us. There's a difference there, church, between what we're trying to achieve here, which is trying to get closer to God, a loving father who who loves us versus just trying not to get in trouble from dad. You know, uh, if, you're, if, you, if you had a, a household where your dad was a bit of a disciplinarian, you, you, you might know what it's like to just try not to get in trouble from dad. And guess what you often did? Do a lot of hiding, sneaking. You know, like you were just trying to curve the rules to get away with as much as possible without getting caught. And this is not what Christianity is all about. Christianity is developing that relationship with your heavenly father, not just to not get in trouble, but to know him and for him to know you and to love each other. For God so loved the world. He loves us and he desires that we love him. See, here's the difference between many other religions and Christianity. The personal relationship with Almighty God. A lot of other religions, I would say there's the uniqueness of Christianity, actually, versus all other religions, is that God desires to be in a personal relationship with us. And so here in the early church, they're trying to figure out, well, what does this look like? What do we keep doing then, and what do we stop doing? So... Acts chapter 15. I'm going to try to push through this. I don't want to take us too long because I also want to have communion with you. Um, but there's lots to be said about this. Certain people came down from Judea to Antioch and were teaching the believers, unless you are circumcised according to the customs taught by Moses, you cannot be saved. This brought Paul and Barnabas into sharp dispute and debate with them. So Paul and Barnabas were appointed along with some other believers to go up to Jerusalem to see the apostles and elders about this question. The church sent them on their way, and as they traveled through Phoenicia and Samaria, they told how the Gentiles had been converted. This news made all believers very glad. When they came to Jerusalem, they were welcomed by the church and the apostles and elders to whom they reported everything God had done through them. Then some of the believers who belonged to the party of the Pharisees stood up and said, the Gentiles must be circumcised and required to keep the laws of Moses. All right, stop there. I'm just going to tell you that this still happens today. Okay, so we don't hear people who call themselves Pharisees in, in the church anymore, right? 
Like even within the Jewish culture, there's no sect of the Pharisees anymore. However, I believe the spirit of the Pharisees still exists today. What do you mean by that, Pastor? That means that there's an attitude, a belief system that has continued throughout the church, throughout generations for 2,000 years that says, unless you do it my way, you're not doing it the way God wants and therefore you're not saved. Have you ever heard of people telling you this before? I've seen it in churches. Unless you worship this way. Rosalind didn't sing the proper order of hymns. And this is called worship words, by the way. It happens within churches. It divides churches. And we need to sing at least this many hymns. Or and then the other crowd comes in and says, we can't sing those old hymns anymore. We need to sing a new song to the Lord. We only need new songs. And by the way, I applaud Roslyn. She does both. She's trying to add in new songs and old songs. But that's just one way where the pharisaical spirit can come into the churches through worship. It can also come in when it comes to the issue of children, like, like we have in our own church. We do have an issue. We're trying to help worship in a way that engages the children, but doesn't kick the children out. Some churches, you know what they do? They don't want any distractions. They put the children in the children's program right away. The children don't know how to interact in a worship environment. So when they become teenagers and told to sit in the church, they're lost. They're confused. They're like, what's happening here? And we want them to learn and grow. And so many people leave the church when they're teenagers or young adults because they don't know what's, what we're doing here. They haven't been brought up in that environment. The pharisaical spirit would say, no, you can't have any distractions within the service. This is just too sacred. They are not welcome. I remember one time we were praying for my cousin who had overdosed and was in the hospital on life support. And we had a special prayer meeting. And a woman told some of the children they couldn't come in and pray for my cousin. And I was like, why? They're like, no, what's happening here is too big for them. And I'm like, I don't believe that. If anything, I think the heart of a child and the prayer and the innocence of a child is way more powerful than our, you know, legalistic prayers sometimes. That if we just pray a certain way or we pray with the right mantra that God's going to hear us. No, God desires the faith of a child. God desires the heart cry of a child. And so when we start making laws that I don't even find in the Bible... That's when you can see that spirit of religion, that cold religion, that pharisaical spirit enter the church. And it existed then, and it still exists today. So church, just beware. Beware. However, I want to also say this, that there are, there are traditions that have value that we need to keep as well. There are things that we do that are commanded within the scriptures. One thing that was very difficult for me during COVID was the fact that the New Testament tells us, do not forsake the gathering of the saints. And I'm going to tell you this. It was tricky because some preachers were actually using that to break government laws in order to just keep their crowds big. And I thought, that's irresponsible. We, this is not the spirit of God that is leading, the spirit of God is seeking that we use our, have wisdom. But then here's the other flip side of it. Well, how long then? I don't want people to stop gathering altogether. I, I don't want this to become a trend that gets people out of the habit of meeting together. And so this is just me sharing my conflicting heart within me is to say, that was a really true, and Su- Susie will tell you, if you ever have a conversation with Susie over the past two years, Susie and I would have 
good, sharp discussions about, like, when should we be open? When should we be closed? And how do we manage when people are here? And what, how, what freedoms should we grant? What, which restrictions should we put in place? And I'm just telling you, it, it's not easy. And the enemy would seek to divide the church. And it's God's will that we are united. And those traditions and those rules should serve a purpose. And so every time that we would have these debates here over the past few years, it'd be like, if there's a purpose behind it, if it can help, if it can facilitate a, 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 an atmosphere of unity and yet still um, allow us to have some freedoms but still protect each other, then we would try to find this compromise. And I'm going to tell you, it was very difficult. But moving forward, it doesn't have to be necessarily issues that the government's um, uh, giving us for regulations. It could be any issue within the church. These are the types of discussions where there's a lot of tension. I just bring up COVID because we all know how tense those discussions were around COVID. But there's going to be future discussions. I mean, I'll be honest with you, even talking about children is very sensitive to me as well. Right, like when someone tells me, "Okay, well, it was hard to worship that Sunday because of children." I'm like, I had to call, like Linda. Linda and I are about to talk about this, and I had to like, okay, Thomas, she's not trying to attack you. She's. We just need to have this conversation because our defenses get up whenever it's something we find personal. And so here in the scriptures, we see we see the the Pharisees saying they must be circumcised, and and the Gentiles like, ah. Like, I, like, listen, listen. If you're a man, you'd be like, hey, if you want to be a part of this church, you must be serious. Whoa, like, come on. And, and some of you might be like, well, why did they do that in the Old Testament to begin with? And, and to be honest with you, I believe there was an original intention when God said to Moses, um, he said to uh, Abraham, sorry, he told Abraham that you must be circumcised. God wanted them, because if you think about this, this that Abraham came to worship one God in a culture that was pagan and had many gods. And by circumcision, okay, this is a little more detailed than, than maybe we're comfortable talking about in church, but the reality is how they worship God was often in that culture was through their sexuality. If you read the Old Testament scripture, you'll read about things like Asherah poles. Okay, an Asherah pole was something that they used to worship, but it was with acts of sexuality to worship the god Asherah. Okay, if you want to have further information about that, we can have a conversation about that. I'm not going to go any further. But when God tells Abraham to circumcise himself, he's taking the sexual organ of a man and he's saying, I want you to be willing to sacrifice that to me, to give up other gods for me. Does that make a little more sense now why they would do that? Now, in the New Testament, we know that the New Testament, God says, listen, I'm going to give you a new heart. I'm going to rework this whole system, create a new covenant, create a new relationship with you where it's not just your act of obedience through circumcision that I get you. It's by you giving not just your, your reproductive sexuality. It's that I want all of you. I want your heart I'm going to give you a new heart, actually. And so it's a whole change. And so here you can understand why in the New Testament church they're wrestling with this. They're like, well, we were told to do this, so you should do it too. And Paul and Barnabas are like, oh, we got to figure this out. We, have, we need to find out what God wants. 
So verse 6 tells us, the apostles and elders met to consider this question. After much, much discussion, Peter got up and addressed them. Brothers, you know that some time ago God made a choice among you that the Gentiles might hear from my lips the message of the gospel and believe. God, who knows the heart, showed that he accepted them by giving the Holy Spirit to them, just as he did to us. He did not discriminate between us and them, for he purified their hearts by faith. Now then, why do you try to test God by putting on the necks of Gentiles a yoke that neither we nor our ancestors have been able to bear? No, we believe it is through grace of our Lord Jesus Christ that we are saved just as they are. So the Old Testament structure religious system was very much, if you listen to these commands that God has given, then this will be your act of righteousness in order to know God. The reality of the situation, God knew they would fail. This is why Paul, uh, Paul is saying here, like, we were given this yoke that we were not able to bear. What does that mean? There was a weight that was put on Israel that God knew they wouldn't be able to do. Why would God do that? Because God wanted to show them that you cannot earn your relationship with God. So, so get that out of your thinking, that if we could just do certain things, we'll be in a better relationship with God. No, Paul's saying it's clear here that God's original intentions from the beginning were, were that Israel would be given this law so that it, they could show that the law would not be able to save them, but that through them, the Savior would be brought into the world because Jesus was a Jew. And that Jesus would take the punishment for all of the fact... The fact that we can't obey anything. Romans talks about this. If you read the book of Romans, it demonstrates this clearly, that we could not fulfill the law. And so God's desire is that we are given the free gift of salvation. We, it's, it's called grace. Grace is a gift that you did not earn. You cannot earn your salvation. God gives you salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. You say, what do I got to do to get that? Uh, it's a gift. You open it right? Like imagine on Christmas morning, I'm like, all right, here's your gift, Julia. And Julia's like, oh yeah, thank you, daddy. And I'm like, all right, hold on, go wash the dishes first, then you get the, the gift. She'd be like, what? You know, Julia wouldn't be more like, what? She'd be like, dad, no! You know, like, I'm not doing that. It's Christmas. This is, this is our faith. Our faith is not Something, we have to do something to get something. It's not an exchange. Listen, we could never give God what he deserves. Think about this. The chairs you're sitting on, the room that is filled with the oxygen, God put all that there. The sun in the sky, the moons and the stars, the snow and the grass, the seasons changing. Who designed all of that? I couldn't possibly even think of that. Julie asked me the other day, Dad, do you, are you smart? And I said, no. <laughs> I said, if, if, if out of everything there ever is to know about everything, I probably know that less than 1% of all there is to know about anything. And she's like, well, how do you, smell, uh, how do you spell smart? Spell it. And then I'm like, S-M-A. No, she, she meant sm spell it, I-T. She's like, you're dumb, dad. <laughs> she's trying to tri trick me. But, but my point being... We cannot 
earn our salvation. It's a free gift. And so when we implement any structure, any methods within the church, which they're trying to figure out here in the Old Testament, we have to say, what is the purpose of them? And the purpose should never be to earn our salvation. Like if you're going to give to the church money, finances, if you're going to put a tithe or, or a gift, an offering in the box at the back or online, that doesn't mean you get a ticket to heaven. That's not paying your way into heaven. If you want a system that tries to pay your way into heaven, try Scientology. I've heard that's how their system works. Here in our church, you can come here and give zero. Actually, you can come here and take from the church. We want to be generous people. And we believe that we will see you in the kingdom of God. Now, you can store up treasures in heaven. We believe that there's a completely different system in heaven in terms of being givers, that God desires that we're givers. But that's another sermon. Verse 12 says, The whole assembly became silent as they listened to Barnabas and Paul, telling about the signs and wonders God had done among the Gentiles through them. When they finished, James spoke up. Brothers, he said, listen to me. Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles. The words of the prophets are in agreement with this as it is written. After this, I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent. Its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it. That the rest of humankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does things does these things, things known from long ago. It is therefore, it is my judgment, therefore, that we should not make it difficult for the Gentiles who are turning to God. Instead, we should write to them, telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols, from sexual immorality, from meat of strangled animals, and from blood. For the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every Sabbath. So what is he saying there? He's saying, let's, let's, let's narrow this down to things that we find important. You're like, okay, well, why this list? Food being polluted by idols. Listen, um, in that day, it was, okay, so I talked about how in the day of Abraham, it was really a sexual act, which was a, a form of worship uh, to idols, it moved into Jesus's day that it was very much a feast where they would go to the temple and have food. And so there was many foods in the marketplace that you would take and you would present them before idols, other gods. And again, our relationship with God as Christians, we believe there is one God who is creator over the heavens and the earth, and we only worship that one God. And so when he's saying don't eat food sacrificed to idols. It was so to help people remind them that there's only one God, we worship only one God, and you can't uh, do what we would call in theological terms syncretism. Syncretism is where you take one faith and you blend it with another to say, well, I'm a Christian, but I also practice other faiths. See, Jesus said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me, which means you cannot blend belief in Jesus with other religions. It's just not compatible, we believe, as Christians. And so he's saying, don't eat food uh, that has been polluted by idols. Um, from sexual immorality, like as a church and as throughout the scriptures, we believe it's consistent, Old Testament, New Testament, that God created sex for marriage between one man and one woman, and that was the purpose of se sex. And so obviously there are many other forms of sex that the world believes in. And as Christians, both Old Testament and New Testament, we believe this is the way that God chose us to practice sexualities within marriage. 
and from meat strangled, uh, uh, meat of strangled animals and from blood. And you might be like, well, why is that one in there? That's a weird one. But I'm going to tell you, in the Old Testament, the, it says that the purpose of abstaining from blood was because the life force was in the blood, right? Like if your blood, body stops pumping blood through your body, you are no longer alive. So the, the belief that life comes from blood, which we actually know is true, was core to the faith of the Jews, and it's being passed on into the early church. And so you say, why is that so important that we don't drink blood? Well, because we believe in the sanctity of life, that life is sacred, that God created us in his image. We don't devalue life. We don't take people's lives and we, we value life. And so whenever you see that um, to abstain from blood, you say, why would they tell them not to drink blood or eat blood, even though that might be gross to you to begin with? Um, you can understand uh, that really it has to do with the value of life. It says, Then the apostles and the elders with the whole church decided to choose from their own men and send them to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. They chose Judas called Barsabbas, Barsabbas and Silas, men who were leading among the believers. With them they sent the following letters. The apostles and the elders, your brothers, to the Gentiles in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia, Greetings. We have heard that some of you went out from among us without our author authorization and disturbed you, troubling your minds by what they said. So we have all agreed to choose some men and send them, with, uh, send them to you with our dear friend Barnabas and Paul, men who have risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, we are sending Judas and Silas to confirm the word by mouth what we are writing. It seemed good to the Holy Spirit and to us not to burden you with anything beyond the following requirements. You are to abstain from food sacrificed to idols, from blood, from the meat of strangled animals, and from sexual immorality. You will do well to avoid these things. So the men were sent off and went down to Antioch, where they gathered the church together and delivered the letter. The people read it and were glad for its encouraging message. Judas and Silas who themselves were prophets, said much to encourage and strengthen the believers. After spending some time there, they, went, they were sent off by the believers with the blessing of peace to return to those who had sent them. But Paul and Barnabas remained in Antioch, where they and many others taught and preached the word of the Lord. I'm going to stop there, and we'll pick up from there next time. Um, there's a few things that I want to say just to move us into a time of communion. And so I just ask, even right now, to prepare your hearts um, to receive communion. Now, when we take communion, as free Methodists, we believe this. Um, some churches practice, like if you're a member of that church or if you've been baptized in that church, then you can take communion. As free Methodists, we believe that anyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved, that if you call yourself a believer in Jesus Christ, you can participate in communion. We even go as far as to say the children can take communion because we believe that children can come to faith at an early age, and we believe that it's good for them to practice their faith by taking in communion. And so we don't try to, as the disciples in the early days, tried not to stop anyone from practicing faith. They tried to put as little hindrances in their way. That's how we like to practice. We're not going to put very many 
things in people's way. And so some of you might ask, well, why do communion anyways? Isn't that just one of these other traditions? But the scripture actually tells us to continue certain things. Like that list that the apostles sent, you know, abstain from sexual immorality, you know, blah, 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 blah. Those things were important to the early church. And, and certain things Jesus told us specifically to do. And communion was one of those. In Luke chapter 22, verse 19, we, said, we see Jesus giving the first communion. And he says, and he took bread, gave thanks, and broke it. And gave it to them saying, this is my body given you do this in remembrance of me. So even though I wouldn't call us a very traditional church in the fact that some churches just carry on the same things every single week and you can have an expectation of what the order of service might look like, yeah, maybe there's a flow that you've got grown familiar with within this church, but we are liable to change it up. Like we're changing, we've changed it up even this week. But there are certain things that within the faith Jesus told us to do, and we're going to do them because Jesus told us to do them. And one of them is to break bread together and to do it in remembrance of Jesus. And this is what we call communion. So that's why we're going to practice this. There's another one that we are told to do that we will continue to do. And um, it is found in Matthew chapter 28, verses um, 19 and 20. And it says, Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. And so we would call these two events, whether it be taking the Lord's Supper, the, the bread and the juice in communion, or being baptized, we would call them sacraments. And you'll find in the word sacrament, the word sacred. We believe that these are sacred things, holy things, set apart things. That's what that word holy means, means to be set apart. They're special moments with us and God. And they're really to do exactly what Jesus told us to do, which is to do it to remember him. Baptism is a symbol of entering into the faith. It's funny that Julia just walked in. Julia's like, don't point me out, Dad. I know she already told me this. Don't point me out. I'm doing it. I'm sorry, Julia. I'm doing it for a purpose, though. Julia told me that this year at camp, uh, which is in August, she would like to be baptized. So I'm excited to be doing exactly what the Scripture says, a sacrament, a holy moment, where we believe that Julia is going to tell the world what something God's already done in her heart, which is to save her through faith. And so that's what baptism is. It's a, it's a moment of declaration, telling the world what God has done in your heart. And so if you're someone who's never been baptized, and you would like to be baptized, yes, Owen. Awesome. We're going to baptize Owen. If you're someone else who wants to get baptized with Owen, we will have a baptism service. I'm going to tell you, Owen, I don't want to do a polar plunge, so we will wait for an opportunity where it's a little warmer, and we will make sure that Owen gets baptized. And we'll plan one this year. And this will be a wonderful opportunity for people who have come into the faith to show that they are believers and love Jesus. Thank you for putting up your hand, Owen. I'm so happy to hear that that's something you want to do. But until then, we get to practice the Lord's Supper together. Like I've been saying there are certain traditions that we keep because they have meaning. And sometimes during communion, I like to ad-lib the scriptures by talking about what the Lord did on the night of his betrayal. But actually, in the Free Methodist Church, we have these old hymnals, 
And someone one, at one time wrote down what we would call the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, where there is an order of service which is more liturgical, which means that there are readings. Liturgy is a reading that has meaning. And sometimes I choose not to read from this because I believe it needs to come from my heart and not just the words on the page. And like I was saying earlier in the service, sometimes I need to just be disciplined to read the words on the page until they have meaning. So we're going to read this, and I don't want it to just be cold religion, like we sang this morning. I want it to be significant and meaningful to you. And so as I read of this, the sacrament of the Lord's Supper, I want you to really meditate on the words, really think through what we're praying, and offer it as a sacrifice of praise to the Lord. You who truly and earnestly repent of your sins, who live in love with your neighbor, and who intend to lead a new life following the commandments of God and walking in his holy ways, draw near with faith. Take this holy sacrament to your comfort and humbly kneeling, make your honest confession to Almighty God. I'm going to stop there. It says humbly kneeling. Today, as we've opened up the altars rails for the children, we're going to also open up the altar rails to you. So in the following uh, readings, I'm going to continue to read, but I'm going to pause at different times. At, at some point before I finish the, and I'm going to read what is called the prayer of consecration of the elements, I'm going to invite you to come forward. And you can choose to um, come forward and kneel and and take this, the Lord's Supper on the communion rails, if there's something about that tradition of bowing your knees to the Lord that you would like to embrace, I encourage you, take your time and spend your time on your knees before the Lord. If you can't get on your knees, because I know some people have a hard time on your knees, there's, uh, you can come, go back to your seat and take communion in your seat. If you have a hard time even coming forward to get your communion, um, just ask, uh, put up your hand, and I'm going to ask Linda to bring you uh, a communion uh, cup, and then you can take it where you're at. And if you choose to just remain in your seat and not take communion today, we'll just leave that between you and the Lord, and there is no judgment there. But I just wanted to explain that if you are wanting to spend time with the Lord today, rather than um, you already having a cup and all us taking it together, I want you to take it individually and have a moment with the Lord, whether it be in your seat, up front, or wherever you are. And so um, I'll, I'll give you permission to start coming forward at a certain point. This is called the general confession. Almighty God, Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, maker of all things, judge of all men, we confess that we have sinned. We are deeply grieved as we remember the wickedness of our past lives. We have sinned against you, your holiness, and your love. And we, only, we deserve only your indignation and anger. We sincerely repent. And we are genuinely, genuinely sorry for all the wrongdoing and every failure to do the things we should. Our hearts are grieved. And we acknowledge that we are hopeless without your grace. Have mercy upon us. Have mercy upon us, most merciful Father, for the sake of your Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ, who died for us. Forgive us. Cleanse us. 
Give us strength to serve you and please you in newness of life and to honor and praise your name through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I invite you, if you know the Lord's Prayer, to pray along with me. Our Father, which art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive those who trespassed against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. O Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who with great mercy has promised forgiveness to all who turn to you with hearty repentance and true, true faith, have mercy upon us. Pardon and deliver us from our sins. Make us strong and faithful in all goodness and bring us to everlasting life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Almighty God, unto whom all hearts are opened, all desires known, and from whom no secrets are hid, cleanse the thoughts of our hearts by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we may perfectly love you and worthily magnify your holy name through Christ our Lord. It is always right and proper in our moral duty that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, O Lord, Holy Father, Almighty and everlasting God. Therefore, with angels and archangels and with all the inhabitants of heaven, we honor and adore your gracious name, evermore praising you and saying, Holy, 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 Lord God of hosts, heaven and earth are full of thy glory. Glory be to thee, O Lord Most High. Glory be to the Father and the, to the Son and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Amen. We do not come to this, your table, O merciful Lord, with self-confidence and pride, trusting in our own righteousness, but we trust in your great and many mercies. We are not worthy to gather the crumbs from under your table, but you, O Lord, are unchanging in your mercy, and your nature is love. Grant us, therefore, God of mercy, God of grace, so to eat at this your table that we may receive in spirit and in truth the body of your dear son, Jesus Christ, and the merits of his shed blood, so that we may live and grow in his likeness and being washed and cleansed through his most precious blood, we may evermore live in him and he in us. Amen. I invite you at this time to come and take a cup. And if you would like to have a place at the front, you can take a place at the front. If you'd prefer to go back to your seat, you can go back to the seat. And as you do this, um, I'll, I'll take a moment in silence as people come forward and grab theirs. But then I'm going to read the prayer of consecration of the elements. And in your own time, when you feel right with the Lord, after taking a moment of asking him to judge your heart and to ask for forgiveness and to pray a prayer of thanksgiving as well. Take the Lord's Supper 
and, uh, and be blessed. But I'm going to read throughout the process. You take it when you feel comfortable taking it, uh, if you want to take it, wherever you want to take it. All I do ask is just be patient because I don't want people to get in each other's way and tripping each other up, that's all. If you've never had these before, there is two covers, one that covers the little wafer, which represents the bread, and then the other one, which opens the juice. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, who gave love in love your only Son, Jesus Christ, to suffer, suffer death upon the cross for our redemption, who by his sacrifice offered once for all, did provide a full perfect and sufficient atonement for the sins of the world. We come now to your table in obedience to your Son, Jesus Christ, who with his holy gospel commanded us to continue a perpetual memory of his precious death until he comes again. Hear us, O merciful Father, we humbly ask and grant that we, receiving this bread and this cup as he commanded, and the memory of his passion and death, we may partake of his most blessed body and blood. In the night of his betrayal, Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it. And he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take, eat this, my body, which was given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In like manner, after supper, he took the cup and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of this, all of you, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for you and for many, and for the remissions of sin. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Amen. The body of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was given to you, preserve your soul unto everlasting life. Take and eat it in remembrance that Christ died for you, and feed upon him in your heart by faith with thanksgiving. And the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, which was shed for you, preserve your soul and body unto everlasting life. Drink this in remembrance that Christ's blood was shed for you, and be thankful. <laughs> 